1. Revelation chapter 1. We left off at the end of chapter 5 last time, as you recall. It's been a while. So we'll begin with a little bit of review. Um, but before we get into, as we say, all that prophecy stuff, which we've been promising for months now, um, there are two events that we have to talk about, which are uh, not in the book of Revelation literally, but they're elsewhere in the Bible. One is the rapture, and the other is an event called, in most of your translations, the falling away. It comes from one word in the Greek, apostasia. So the word is the apostasy. And we'll talk about that one first this morning, after we've done our quick review. But uh, I promise, Lord willing, if he doesn't come first, or take me first, that uh, in two weeks we will actually get into chapter 6 and the uh, seven seals, the breaking of the seven seals, um, which my family can testify to, the scroll is in construction. Revelation chapter 1. And we're not going to uh, read now the whole section, but I just wanted to remind you what we're looking at here. People think of Revelation, they think of, uh, oh yeah, all that end time stuff and all the judgment of the world and so on. But let's remember how it begins. The first words, what does it say? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Revelation. Let's remember that. What's the main purpose of God? Boy, that's a big question, huh? That rates right up there with, why am I here? Well, you know, I bet uh, maybe not many people would say it, but I'll tell you, a lot of people think the main purpose of God is to make me happy. You know that? Now, they wouldn't say that, most people. But I'll tell you, even people who, some who claim to be a Christian, I, if you look at their life, they, they would have to say that they must believe that God's main purpose is to make them happy. In one of those uh, dear old creeds of the church, uh, there was a statement about man when something like this, the chief aim of man is to know God and to serve him. You ever heard that before? In fact, I think it's recited in the Lutheran church. But it's true. It's, it's a good statement. Nothing wrong with that. That's right. Do you know that? The chief aim of man is to know God and serve him. Boy, doesn't that turn things around for you? And I, uh, I fear, unfortunately, that mankind has turned that around and turned it into the chief aim of God is to know man and to serve him. But that ain't so. I'll tell you, one of the main purposes of God, he has many, is to reveal his son, the revelation of Jesus Christ, to make him known, to see that his son gets the recognition and appreciation that he so deserves. Now, that doesn't fit too well with most people's plans. But uh, he wants to and he will reveal his son and make plain to all that he alone is worthy. And, well, we've got lots of verses we could quote on that. Let's just think of Philippians 2. That in, in one day, this, this is going to be the culmination, the climax of history. Every knee shall bow. That's everybody. Of things in heaven and things on earth, and things under the earth. That's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? Every knee. And that every tongue shall confess, every tongue, that's everybody, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now that's what he's aiming at, and it's going to happen. And uh, I'll tell you, this, this world, and much of the professing churches in the business of... Uh, Keeping that from happening. But it's going to happen. Guaranteed. I'll tell you, if there's anything certain, it's that. That every knee is going to bow. And that includes everybody in this room. Your knee will bow. Either voluntarily right now, in this life ahead of time, so that when you do it in that day, when that happens to everybody else, you're going to do it with joy. Or when that moment happens, you're going to do it with regret and sorrow. But you're going to do it. Everybody will. In the end, God's purposes will succeed. So, Revelation begins with really a declaration of the purpose of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, before he gets into all that prophecy stuff, really, he spends a whole chapter, if you remember. Remember chapter 1? It's a, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. First to John, he sees a vision of the risen Christ. And then, of course, we do because we read 
what he wrote. So there is kind of a preview, if you will, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then uh, in chapters 2 and 3, if you remember, um, hopefully you still have this handout I gave you. It was the summary of the seven letters to the church, and I see some heads nodding. You remember that? Chapters 2 and 3 are devoted to uh, seven letters to seven churches in uh, what is now modern Turkey. And uh, just by way of reminder, you remember this map. Uh, Matt, could you come up here maybe? And maybe, John, could you just help me for a moment? Oops. There we go. You can just kind of hold it. Yeah, okay. Now, you're familiar with where we are, right? Here's Turkey jutting out in the Mediterranean Sea. And I, I marked him with a uh, highlighter this time. I use Amy's hot pink highlighter. And there are some lessons, really, that uh, are in the Bible that you're not going to get until you do a lot of in-depth study. And here's one of them. When you read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, you read about these seven churches. And you come across and you say, Ephesus. Oh, yeah, I remember that. The letter to the Ephesians. I'm familiar with that. But then you read like Philadelphia and uh, Thyatira and, and uh, Pergamos or Pergamum and you say, I don't even know where those are. And you just kind of, you know, you get these seven names in your head and you're kind of familiar with one and you read on. But there's a neat little treasure hidden in that list of names if you were to do the study. Because as I showed, they actually go in a closed, well not exactly a circle, but a closed figure. Isn't that neat? Uh, and I'll say why in a minute. It begins with Ephesus here, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You see, Jesus didn't just kind of pick churches, you know, all over the place. He actually picked them so that they form a closed figure. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, you don't seem to think so. Well, look, look here. Okay, you guys uh, have done a good job. Just, just a quick reminder. This is Pergamos, uh, pardon me, uh, Patmos where John was held prisoner for the sake of the gospel, by the way at the age of 90, roughly, uh, and wrote this. So, just before you put it down, here's one obvious reason why the Lord Jesus chose these churches. John knew them. He ministered in this area. That's why he was held prisoner here. He was so old, you know, they were, in that sense, kind of kind to him that they only took him 50 miles offshore instead of over to Rome or something. But he knew these churches. They knew him. In fact, if you can see, see how it's a kind of a lighter area going around here connecting these churches? You see that? There's a road that actually loops around. You, you, could, you could connect all these by road. And no doubt, in his later years, he probably rode a donkey, but, you know, he, he ministered by just maybe doing a circuit among the churches. Okay? You with me? Okay, thanks. Uh, now look here in chapter 1, because there's something interesting here. When the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself, he says... Uh, chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, and he gives a list of the names. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, you got that? One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. This is the Lord Jesus. And he's in the midst of these seven. So you can get the picture. There's this like the circle of seven lampstands. And in the middle of them, in the midst, is the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, we know what they mean because he tells us in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Okay? The lampstands represent the churches. So here's the Lord Jesus standing in the midst, you see, of the churches. A beautiful picture of his lordship. He is the head. We are the body. His lordship over the, over the church and his active involvement and interest in uh, the local church. But now you can see the picture here on the map. There is that little circle, you see, of seven churches, just like the seven lampstands, and Jesus in the midst. He's... And he's, gonna, he's, he's seeing them all, you see. He's looking around. He's looking at the churches. And he gives his appraisal of each one as he stands in the midst and looks at them. Isn't that neat? So that little picture of the circle of the seven churches around him, we never would have gotten unless you dig in. And you've got to do some, some research to find out where a couple of them are because they're nothing but ruins today. 
In fact, just a last comment on it. It's very interesting. Out of, the, out of the seven churches, you remember, Smyrna was the strongest. Remember, it was the persecuted church. He had no rebuke for the church at Smyrna at all. Remember that? Now, it's interesting that out of all those seven cities, that by far is, is the most prosperous today. It's, it's, it's modern Izmir on the coast of Turkey, a, a, a thriving seaport. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps God, you know, responded in, in, their, in that city's willingness to accept the gospel and st stay steadfast. I don't know. Because the other interesting thing is that the two worst churches, um, Laodicea, of course, you know that one, and Sardis, are, are ruins. In fact, uh, I saw pictures of them in my, in my Bible encyclopedia, and you go out and they're just out in the middle of an open plain, just a bunch of rocks laying in a pile. Nothing for miles, no city, nothing. Just, they're all gone. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps, you know, as a result of God's judgment in their uh, lack of reception of the gospel. Who knows? Well, so uh, we saw those that, why, why, so why these seven? Well, I've kind of answered it in, in part. First of all, they, they form a closed figure, as you saw, so that when Jesus says, I am the one that in the midst of the, of the lampstands, you know, and the lampstands are the churches, we can picture him then in the midst of those churches. And also John knew them, and they knew him. So that when he wrote the letters, those le that letter, the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, was taken to the churches in red. And we talked about that. Well, I think also, though, uh, and, and we saw this, if, if you still got your hand out, you can remember, we saw seven in, in the Bible, we've learned it represents completeness, right, completion. And if you see the character of the churches in progression as he takes them there in order, they really correspond to the history of the church through the ages. Beginning with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea. It's, it's a complete picture, complete, seven, of the church, the history. And now when I say church, we have to be careful. I mean the professing church. Okay, Those who say they're Christians, of which today a third of the world's population, incredible, huh? Began with a handful of believers in the city of Jerusalem. And now today, one-third of the world, two billion people, claim to know Jesus Christ. How many out of those really are saved? Not many. Not many. It's a professing church. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You see, uh, how can I say this? The, the uh, church age ends in failure. Not for God. God never fails. But... The professing church fails. The age of grace is going to end in failure, just like every other age ends in failure for mankind. Don't be surprised. And so that's why the last church, corresponding to this period in history we're in right now, is the church at Laodicea, where Jesus is on the outside of the church. That's incredible. You can imagine, here they are inside, having their meeting, talking about Jesus, you know, singing hymns to Jesus, preaching about Jesus. And he's outside. Knocking, let me in. That's the church in the last days. Leading up to this event, we're going to look at it in a second, it's called the apostasia, the falling away. Now that is not the falling away yet. We're getting there. I mean, we're about as close as you can get. The, the apostasia itself will be an absolute denial of the Christian faith. And as we sit today, many Orthodox churches, quote unquote, still have Orthodox doctrine, doctrines of statement. But the, uh, the apostasy is going to be an actual denial of the uh, principles of the Christian faith. So, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, if you look at the ages, begin with the, in the Garden of Eden, there was the ideal setting. Everything perfect. And it failed, didn't it? Now, God's plan, praise God, overall succeeds perfectly. Through all the ages, all of his plans succeed. But as far as we're concerned in our behavior, we failed. Isn't it incredible? Think about it. Perfect situation. One tree out of all creation. And all of a sudden it was like, man, that's the tree I've got to have. And we failed. Uh, you go on and uh, you come up to the flood. Even after the lesson of being expelled uh, from the garden, it says by that point, uh, the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. And we failed again. It got so bad that the, the earth was just covered with sin and God judged the world. Uh, God 
did a different kind of test, if you will, experiment with mankind. Uh, he, he chose a nation for himself out of all the nations, Israel, starting with Abraham. Gave them the law, gave them all these wonderful advantages. His word, uh, the priesthood, you know, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all these things. He spoke to them directly. And what happened? They failed. Even with all those advantages. And he judged them. Every time, by the way, the, when the test or the experiment fails, it ends in judgment. Well, we could go on, but the, the age we're living in now, sometimes it's called the church age, sometimes it's called the age of grace, is going to end in failure for man. And we're there. We're, we're there right now. The, the professing church is very much like the nation of Israel was when the Lord Jesus cut it off 2,000 years ago. Formalism, outside profession, but no inward reality. You see, all leaves and no fruit. And so, we're there. It could happen any time. The Lord Jesus himself uh, forecast the, uh, the downgrading, the, the, uh, in physics it's called the law of entropy, the winding down of uh, the professing church. In Matthew 13, those parables, there are seven parables there, and three or four of them, really, the main thrust is talking about that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven as he calls it, is going to be full of false, false believers. Probably the best example was the mustard seed. Remember that one? Jesus said the mustard seed is a little seed. But he says you're gonna, you're gonna, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed and you put it in the ground and then it's going to grow up and become a great tree. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They grow into little bushes. It's an abnormal growth. And he says the birds of the air are going to come and and rest in its branches. So you've got this little seed that's only supposed to grow up in this little bush. And, and, and people have read that, and, and some of them say, oh, isn't this wonderful? He's talking about the spread of the gospel. No, he's not. He's talking about the abnormal growth of the professing outward church, that it's all this abnormal growth of the birds of the air, they're unclean birds, come and rest. In fact, you can correspond that thing about the birds we're going to look at it later in Revelation chapter 18. He talks about Babylon the Great. That's what's left, by the way, after the rapture and the few believers are taken away. Imagine, we're still going to roughly have 2 billion people left in the world professing Christ. Can you imagine that? Still, it's going to be roughly one-third of the world's population. What are they going to do next Sunday? They're going to go to church. But not long after that, they're going to deny the faith. And God's going to judge them. And that religious system, along with... Uh, the, the abnormal growth that it absorbs, who knows what else, as it goes along, is going to become what's called Babylon the Great. And, and he devotes two chapters, 17 and 18, talking about the judgment. And in there, it's interesting that uh, God says through John that if, at Babylon the Great, the, the birds and all the unclean fowl of the air live in a cage in Babylon the Great. Is that interesting? Just like the birds in the air resting in the branches of the unnatural growth of the mustard seed. And, and, and living in a cage, it doesn't mean that they're trapped there. The idea is, you know, they, they've got a home. The unclean birds of the air have got a home in Babylon the Great, in the professing but false outward church. Many others, the, the wheat and the tares, you know that parable. Same idea. Uh, the sower and the seed and so on. So we end with Laodicea uh, at the end of the church age. We're going to look at this in more detail. Uh, I'd love to spend weeks on the rapture, but we're going to look at some key passages, among them Romans uh, chapter 11, certainly 1 Thessalonians 4, probably John 14. So we shouldn't be surprised. And what's, what, what's, the, what's the lesson we can learn from all of this about the, the failure of all the ages? Well... Certainly, God is demonstrating over and over and over again that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now, let's personalize it. He's demonstrating not just, you know, there's all those evil people out there, but that I am a sinner. That's what he's demonstrating. Over and over and over again. They're little experiments, little tests. Everyone under the ideal conditions. The last one, the millennium. Jesus himself reigning on the earth. Imagine. What better conditions than that? You know how it ends? 
Rebellion! It fails. We can't stand it. I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about mankind. I'm speaking as a human. Mankind rebels. Like Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked, de- deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And uh, he says elsewhere, let's look at 2 Timothy 3. You've read this section many times. I don't know how many people realize he's talking about professing Christians here. He's talking about the professing church. It's a prophecy of the last days. It's a description of what people do. And I want you to notice in uh, verse 5 something about these people. It says, having a form of godliness. You see that? See, these, these are people who outwardly say they're believers. Now, let's start back at verse 1 and see what he says about them. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, underline that, last days, perilous times will come, for men will be, and here's the list, listen to this, lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boy, aren't these, these people are wonderful, huh? Look at the word love here. Isn't that great? We're commanded to love. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, what a good summary of the professing church today. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Every time Ray and Denise come down here to hear the word of God, they say it's like a breath of fresh air. Because every place they've been going, you know, within a radius of 20 miles of Placerville, it's entertainment. The church is out to entertain you today. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Here's a prophecy. And it fits with the church of Laodicea. Chapter 4, he says it again. Uh, verse 3, for the time will come. Just flip over a page there. Chapter 4, verse 3. The time will come. It's a later time. It's a future time. The last days. When they will not endure sound doctrine. Today, as I said, uh, a guy like me standing up and preaching from the Bible is called a talking head. You know? It's got a negative connotation. People don't want that. Well, you're right. Unless they're true believers. True believers drink up the preaching of the Word of God. But you're right, people in general, they don't want a talking head. They want, they want uh, fun, they want activity, they want entertainment, they want plays, they want rhythm, you know. They want uh, their ears tickled, that's what he says, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. That's a, that's a great expression, itching ears. You know, they have to be tickled. They will heap up for themselves. You get this picture of a pile, you know. <laughs> heap up for themselves. Teachers, and I'll tell you for every one man willing to preach the word of God, there's a thousand more than happy to tell the people what they want to hear. Heaps. There are heaps of people like this. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful. We're going to talk about this. In all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And uh, the other passage, there are others, but here's uh, the one I referred to earlier, Second Timoth- uh, Thessalonians, pardon me, a left turn in your Bible, just a few pages. We're not going to look at this in detail. We're going to save most of this till later when we get into Revelation 6 because it talks about the Antichrist and other things. But um, I, I don't know. I, I believe, I tell you, the, the, the professing church, it's ready right now. It, it's almost there. But the apostasia is going to happen in a moment of time. And I believe the thing that's going to trigger it is going to be the rapture. You know what? Imagine what the church is going to be like when there are no true believers in it. Can you imagine that? I mean, why stick to sound doctrine? There's nobody that believes it anymore. They're all gone. What, and nobody left to preach the word of God. They're all gone. The only ones that are left are the false believers. Nearly two billion of them. And so he says, uh, we'll just start with verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless, and here it is, the falling away comes first. Okay, there it is. The falling away, that word in the Greek is apostasia. It means apostasy. Denying of the truths of the scripture. That'll come first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. He, he will come after that. So, I'll tell you, the, 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 the professing church is ready. You think about, first of all, obviously the cults, they clearly deny the Lord already, who account for hundreds of millions of people throughout the world. Uh, but, but use the Bible, and they talk about Jesus. They've already apostatized. Uh, large denominational churches, certainly uh, the Catholic Church, I'm sorry, but being among the biggest, uh, teaching plainly that you're saved by works, that the cross of Christ did not do it. Nearly two billion. And there'll be a wholesale abandoning of the Christian doctrine triggered by the rapture. Now, you, I know every time we talk about this, you know, you sit there, and I do too, you say, man, they've got to know it. They've got to, they've got to recognize it when it happens. You know? You've seen the, most of you have probably seen the painting, you know, of, of the rapture the event. You see this thing up in the top with all these something swooping upward toward heaven, must be the believers. And down you see the scene of devastation, planes crashing into buildings, you know, cars running off the road. Total chaos in the world. And I'm sure there'll be some, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as, as major as a lot of people think. There aren't that many true believers in the professing church in the world. There, there, there are a whole congregation sitting today with the Bible in their hands, and none of them are going to meet Jesus on that day. They're going to be left behind. I, w I, w I would believe if Jesus came right now, you think everybody in this room would go with him? No. There'd be some still, still sitting here. But they're not going to recognize it, and that's what we're going to look at. You see, they don't want to believe it. On top of that, even if they did want to believe it, let, let's finish up here. Just look ahead real quick at 9. You know this, most of you. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception, deception, notice, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That's a chilling verse to me. I don't know of another place in the scripture... Uh, the closest is when Saul was troubled by the lying spirit. But I, know, I don't know of any other time in history where God, actually like this, judges the people by deluding them, by causing them to believe a lie. It's, it's an act of judgment by God upon the, the professing church who have toyed with the gospel all these years but have not entered into it. And so, uh, by doing that, he's going to judge them. And the judgment is he's going to send... Uh, a deception, or he's going to reinforce a deception, and they're going to believe a lie. I don't know what that is. But I'll tell you, if God does it, there's, no one's going to be able to resist it. No one. And you sit here and you think, oh, that's going to be so obvious. Nope. One, one of the ways to see it is to look back at Jesus' first coming. It happened exactly the same way. I want you to look back. We could look at all kinds of verses. Just look at one section. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, look at this. It looks like it's written after the cross. We'll just look at a couple of verses. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stri stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we read that today, and we say, isn't that wonderful? A beautiful picture of the cross, where the Lord Jesus 
took my place. Now understand, brothers and sisters, this was written by a man named Isaiah, a Jew who lived 600 years before Christ. And for 600 years, that sat, rolled up in scrolls, read occasionally, sitting there. It was a prophecy. It hadn't happened yet. And any studious Jew could go to the synagogue and get out the scrolls and look at it, and he, and he'd, uh, he could study it, and he'd wonder who it was. Most of them didn't want to think it was the Messiah because it didn't sound too good. But listen to this. It's done. It's happened. It's over. It's fulfilled. Isn't that great? Praise God. Now, these verses we've looked at in 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, the day will come, the apostasia. That's still like Isaiah used to be. It's just printing on the page right now. The apostasia part and the rapture, which we're going to look at next. But there's coming a time soon when that's going to be history, just like this is. But when the coming of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ came, the, when he came the first time, was it recognized? No. And when he was buried and when he raised again the third day, the people that should have known better bribed the guards to make a lie to say that his disciples stole the body away. They wanted to cover it up. They didn't want it to be real. You know why? Because they were just like we are today. When I say we, I mean people now. I'm not talking about believers, hopefully. They're so busy. Here's the classic phrase. I love it. Jesus uses it several times. They were so busy with buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage. They didn't want Jesus to come. They don't want the status quo to be interrupted. I'm happy, Lord. Hold off for a while. And so, when, think about it. The, before the cross, Jesus had been there for 30 years. And they didn't even know it. Imagine, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, had been in their midst for 30 years, and they didn't even know it. When he was born, think about this. Um, he appears to those shepherds. Well, I'll tell you. Those shepherds, I bet you they blabbed everybody that would hear what had happened. This day is born to you in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, right? But you don't see a mad flock of people to Bethlehem. You know? Later, it was a few years later, by the way, you always got the picture in the, uh, in the crash, you know, of, of uh, the shepherds there and, of course, the, the, the three wise men well, really, the wise men, that, that happened a couple years later. I hate to burst your bubble, okay? But it's actually a couple years later. Uh, that's why Herod killed the kids that were two years and younger, because he, he estimated from their description when, when they had seen the star. So here come these, these guys from, an, from the east who had seen the star, and they inquire about it. And Herod sends, and he gathers all the religious guys, because he doesn't know. He gets his religious cabinet together. And they knew. They told him right off the top, Bethlehem. They knew it. Why on earth didn't they have a watch posted in Bethlehem for the last 400 years? It was prophesied in Micah 400 years before that. It's incredible. It had already happened a couple of years before. And, and uh, these guys say, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, well, uh, Bethlehem. He's been there two years and they don't even know it. They don't care. They don't want him there. Herod didn't want him. When Herod heard this, you remember... He didn't like this news. And incredibly enough, I mean, one of the most cruel acts done by any reigning monarch killed the children in the city of Bethlehem, two years male, the male children, two years and younger. And he did it in the name, uh, really, of religion, by the way. Remember what he said? He said, tell me where the child is so I can come and worship him too. Remember that? There's the heart of man. They didn't want him to come. He grew up 30 years there in obscurity. Nobody knew who he was that I know of. You don't read about it in the scripture. He came in at the age of 12 and, and stumped all the great teachers of the time. And they kind of scratch their head and say, where'd this guy come from? You know, where'd he get all this learning? And then vanished back to uh, Nazareth again. And then think of, think of the three years of public ministry. 
all the healing, raising people from the dead. You know? And the best most did was, can this be the Christ? You know, and that was as far as it went. Look, we're no different today. You know, the world is no more astute than the Jews were then. People today are just like they were then. They didn't want it to be Messiah. They didn't want their routine interrupted. They don't mind getting free food when he uh, did the uh, loaves and the fish. Or certainly healing and raising from the dead. That's great. Lord, give us more miracles. Until finally he said, look, I'm not going to do any more miracles. You're going to have a sign, the sign of Jonah, and that's it. They didn't want it. And so here he is, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, supposedly, in their midst. And what did they do? They killed him. There it is. And now don't be thinking, all those Jews back there. That's a representative case of all of mankind, the human heart. Here God had been saying way ahead of time uh, where his son was going to be born. When, by the way, the triumphal entry. Remember we looked at that prophecy, Daniel uh, chapter 9. Right down to the date. All these characteristics of what his ministry would be like, what his death would be like. It all happened right under their noses and they didn't even know it. Because they were asleep. Because they didn't want it to happen. But here we go. Isaiah 53, you can read it, brothers and sisters. God said it. And he did it. And it's history. And today, you go to the uh, typical Orthodox Jew and he's still waiting for the Messiah. Still waiting. And he's already come. Let's look at uh, Luke. Because there are two wonderful exceptions, and this is what I want to close with to this uh, general rule of indifference and ignorance. Two wonderful people. Because there are some, verse, some words here that I want to apply to us. We're not going to read the whole section, just one verse about each one of them. First one, Simeon, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke 2, 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. And here's the key word. What does it say? Waiting. He was waiting. And God means that in the real sense. He really was waiting, looking for the Messiah. He wasn't asleep, you see. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Capital C, capital I, meaning the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And God rewarded this just man in allowing him to take up, if you can imagine, the Messiah in his arms. Isn't that great? Take the Messiah in his arms and recognize him. I think that's wonderful. And the other, of course, is Anna, the next, next person right after this. And it says about her in verse uh, 38, she's an old woman, 84 years old, a widow, coming to the temple, she was looking to, and it's clear because it says in verse 38, and coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who, and here's the key phrase, looked for redemption in Israel. You see, there were a few who, when he came, God gave the wonderful privilege of seeing him, recognizing it, and being blessed by God. But we know by far, the, the world was asleep. The nation of Israel slept through the whole thing. And when it was done, they hushed it up with a bride to the guards. That's real people. That's what really happened. And we can turn to those 300 prophecies that are as plain as day, right down to the gambling for his garments, uh, being crucified with uh, two robbers, on and on and on. Specific prophecies, over 300 of them, that Jesus fulfilled. And to this day... The typical Jew is waiting still for him to come. Brothers and sisters, this should be us. Simeon and Anna. Okay? And I'll admit it, there's a tendency to go to sleep. Why? Because everybody around us is asleep. You know how it is in a room when somebody yawns, everybody else yawns? What's well, like that? The world is asleep. The, is the world waiting for Jesus Christ to come? Huh? No. Do they want him to come? Absolutely not. 
Does most of the professing church want Jesus to come right now? What do you think? Absolutely not. He would interrupt their routine. He'd, he'd put a, a, uh, a burr in their life, you know? It'd be an interruption. And we need to be careful that we don't fall asleep with everybody else. So we'll close with three passages we're going to read together. And then we're going to look at the rapture next week because that's the next event. And it can happen at any time, let me tell you. It can happen before I read these passages. You see, there's nothing left to happen. And the stage, which we didn't know had to happen, but we see it now, is all set. Israel's back in the land. It has been for 52 years. The, the church is just, it, the professing church, it's ready to apostatize. We're there. And so the world is asleep. Most of the professing church is asleep. Many professing Christian, real Christians, I believe, are falling asleep. Romans 13. God, sensing this danger, addresses this problem. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Isn't that true? The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You see that? Wake up, he says. Don't fall asleep. Don't lapse into that buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage. It doesn't mean, he's not saying those are sinful things or that we shouldn't do them. He says, don't make that your life. My life should be Jesus Christ. It's not God uh, exists. His chief aim is to know me and serve me. My chief aim in life is to know him and serve him and wait for him expectantly. Right turn to 1 Thessalonians. We could be up here for hours. There are passages all over the New Testament like this. We'll just look at three of them. First this, chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You know, I've been telling you about the times and seasons. You know what that is? He says, you know, you can look out and you can see you can tell by the signs that something's about to happen. Jesus uh, said that to the Jews in the Gospels. You know, he says, you're really good. You, you can see that the sky is red and you say, it's gonna, there's a storm coming. He commended them for that. He says, but you can't even see the signs around you. What he means is, here he was right in their midst and they didn't even know it. That's what he's talking about here. Well, I'll tell you, if we could ever look around and see the sky is red, it's now. The times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. I've never been pregnant, but I'm sure uh, you ladies in here that have been. I remember when my wife had our first child, and of course it was in the middle of the night. You know, all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm in bed, you know, wham, Rick! Out of nowhere. That's the way it's going to be. You know, don't lapse into the thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to have a good couple of weeks ahead of time to get ready. Uh-uh. No. That's why Jesus told the parable of the, of the foolish virgins. Right? He tells us those things. I'll tell you, if you're banking on something like that, you're going to wait and get your act together later. You're, you're denying what Jesus said. He said, if you wait, guaranteed, you're going to be surprised. upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as others do, everybody around us. But let us, what? Watch. Watch. 
and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope, that's looking forward to Jesus coming. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, now here when we say sleep, he means that we're dead. He doesn't mean sleeping spiritually. We should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And finally, uh, we'll close with uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. That's us. Walking according to their own lust. We're going to see later in the book of Revelation, there's this phrase that occurs over and over again where God is describing the people on the earth while he's judging it. And it's one word in the Greek. And it's translated several words in your Bibles. It's those who dwell upon the earth. And it's literally earth dwellers in the original. And it's a strong phrase. It means those who are here on this earth and they're walking like this. I mean, this is it. This is, this is the beginning and end of their existence. This place right here. No thought of God. No care of God. They're earth dwellers. They've nestled down here, boy. They got a home. This is it. And that's this kind of people that he's talking about here. Walking according to their own lusts. They're walking, you know. They're all, all they're concerned about is seeking pleasure, making myself happy, apart from God. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Don't they say that? Yeah. Uniformitarianism is the phrase scientists use. You know, that's why the Grand Canyon took a billion years. Because it was only this little creek that carved it out. They deny the fact that there was a flood. In fact, he talks about that here. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They deny it. You see, if they accept that, they accept the possibility that God can miraculously intervene again and come back. And they don't want that. They like this nice, comfortable, you know, billions of years. Oh, isn't that nice? Things just flowing along, just as they always have been. I got up this morning, I dressed myself, you know, I'm making myself happy. I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow and the day after that. All things continue as they have from the beginning. Right? Yeah. But, here's the truth, verse 7. The heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You don't see it, but there's a big sign like you'd see it on a condemned building. I wish you could have seen it. They dropped uh, like a 10-story building in San Francisco a couple of months ago. But the thing is, you couldn't get close enough to see it, you know, unless you knew somebody. Wouldn't it be neat to see something like that? Well, that, And they had a sign, you know, get it, keep out of here. This place is condemned. That's what he says about the earth, the world. There's this huge sign. God... God brought this big sign. You don't see it. And he staked it on the earth. And it says, reserved for judgment. Yeah, think about all these people that are nestling down, huh? On that earth. Scary thought. Verse 8. Now he's talking to us. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Praise God for that. You know? That Jesus didn't come back a hundred years after he was crucified, where would I be? Praise God, he didn't come back in 1970. I got saved in 1971. He's, he's patient. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But that doesn't mean he's going to wait forever. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Isaiah 53, God said it's going to happen. It happened. It's done. It's history now. God says this is going to happen. It's going to happen. 
And not very long from now, this is going to be history too. Therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What's the next word? Looking. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We need to be looking, brothers and sisters. We need to be awake. Pinch yourself if you're falling asleep. Pinch yourself if you're finding yourself lapsing into that buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that you didn't have to tell us ahead of time. You could have just done it. But we who know you, thank you. You told us ahead of time that right now we are waiting for our Savior to come and take us home. And what a a joyous hope that is. And we are, as you say, Lord, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Keep us awake. Help us, Lord, to be attentive, not to lapse into the worldly way of uh, denying His coming. But Lord, may we be found watching as we've seen in these verses, looking, waiting, anticipating, being ready to meet him, that we may not shrink back in shame at his appearing. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.